0: America has been engulfed by its most widespread sustained unrest since the late 1960s. Protests erupted across the country after George Floyd, an African-American man, was killed by a white police officer who, during an arrest, knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes. Anger and grief not just at this incident, but at pervasive racial injustices, have since spread protests to more than 350 cities. Most have been peaceful, but some have escalated into violent riots. Shops have been looted, the police department in Minneapolis burned and four policemen in St. Louis were shot at and injured. Police in turn have fired tear gas and rubber bullets at peaceful protesters, raising both the temperature and the tensions. In all, at least 11 people have been killed, hundreds injured and nearly 10,000 arrested across America. So, after all this, can things be different? Is it, as many protesting hope, a moment of real impact on racial equality in the political future of America in a crucial election year? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how will George Floyd's death change America? My guest is Valerie Jarrett. As President Obama's longest-serving senior advisor, she was his point person in the White House on criminal justice matters, including police reform. She started her career in politics, working for Chicago's first black mayor, Harold Washington and she now chairs When We All Vote, a campaign to close the race and age voting gap. She's author of an autobiography, Finding My Voice, and a distinguished senior fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. Valerie Jarrett, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much, Anna. Pleasure to be with you. President Obama has uh, broken his silence in recent days on the George Floyd killing in the aftermath. And he said this, if going forwards we channel our justifiable anger into peaceful, sustained and effective action, this
1: moment can be a real turning point. But that's a big if, do you agree? It is a big if, but I will say, I feel more optimistic today than I have in a long time. I think what uh, happened with everyone, not just the United States, but around the world, watching the painful, slow murder of George uh, Floyd was a real wake up call. But I want to say we shouldn't look at it in isolation. It's a cumulative effect of what has been since the original sin of slavery in our country, followed by Jim Crow, followed by decades and decades of discrimination and racism uh, throughout society. And then you add on to that this tense relationship between police and communities of color, and the police are simply a microcosm of our of our whole society. Uh, and then we saw a, another wave caught on video during the time President Obama was in office from uh, the deaths of Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Laquan McDonald, my hometown, Tamir Rice. I could go on, and the list is so painful, and each family deserves... That, that moment of recognition. And I should mention that today is the funeral of George Floyd, which is going on momentarily in, in Minneapolis. And I think, so this has been building this sense of pain and frustration and anger and, honestly, exhaustion in the Black community. Uh, but it has now spilled over. And what has heartened me, and the reason part of why I'm so optimistic, is that the demonstrations, mostly peaceful in our country, have been in all 50 states. And the folks who've been out there protesting are not just black people. They're people of all colors, of all walks of life, of all ages. And so I think in order to change the culture, we have to have everybody engaged. But we also need to have partners at government at both the state, federal and local level so that we ensure that our justice system is actually just and equitable for all.
0: But but let's go. I mean, it's interesting that you say you're feeling more optimistic uh, today A lot of the protests across the week had a real sense of injustice but they also had a sense of anger behind them and that leads you to a kind of fork in the road where you have to figure out what the balance is between the the genuine fury that people feel about this death and everything that lies behind it and how you come up with something that can take the whole of society with you. Do you think that that balance is now the
1: right one with where the protests are taking place today? I Look, I think that uh, change is a gradual process. I think this is the beginning. This is not the end. The glimmers of hope I glean from the law enforcement officers who took off their shields and their helmets and marched with the protesters, the officers who kneeled with protesters, that listened to protesters, that hugged protesters and the protesters that felt empathy for what the law enforcement officers were going through as well. So I think it is the beginning and and the good news is is that as a result of a lot of hard work that was done in the Obama administration with partners across the country, a task force created some concrete steps that law enforcement could take to improve and strengthen the bonds of trust Uh, at the local level where the 18,000 law enforcement agencies really rest in the United States most of law enforcement is done on the ground. And just yesterday, as an example, President Obama had a town hall through his foundation. And in advance of it, I called several of the mayors of our big cities, the mayors from San Francisco, Minneapolis, Chicago, my hometown, DC, Atlanta, and New York, and Los Angeles. And I said, would you be willing to take a pledge to look at your use of force with the community over the next 60 to 80 days, uh, because the president is gonna call for it at his town hall. And every mayor, every single one of them said, absolutely. And as of this morning, or actually even late last night, we had over 200 mayors who'd gone on the website to say, yes, we will do this. Now, you might say this is late, and that would be true. And that's part of the anger and frustration, is why have we not done this sooner? But here we are now. And the question is, do we have that perfect storm, in a sense, where you have people mobilizing in the streets, where you have mayors saying, yes, we have to do something about this because they're managing the unrest and they're, they're being put under a lot of pressure. And then you have the swift, really swifter than I've ever seen, Attorney General from Minnesota, Keith Ellison, who I knew when he served in Congress, not only bring charges against all four officers up the charge of the initial officer from uh, third degree to second degree, but to do it so swiftly and decisively, send a positive message that those in power are listening. Well, so- that, that, that is interesting because
0: it preempts something I wanted to follow up with. Barack Obama wrote this week, I've heard some suggest that the recurrent problem of racial bias in our criminal justice system proves that only protests and direct action can bring about change and that voting and participation in electoral politics is a waste of time. I couldn't disagree more, says Barack Obama. But that divide does exist. And there are many people who feel that it is still pointless. Why should people believe what Barack Obama says about this?
1: Well, I think we should, we're talking about two separate things here. We're talking about racism. That's in people's hearts. And that has to do with culture. And I do believe that generationally we are getting better in this country, just as we are getting better with LGBTQ rights in this country. We are on that arc of the moral universe moving towards justice uh, to a more perfect union, let's say. But then there's discrimination and that's when the government comes in because what we expect from the government is to ensure that our judicial system, our criminal justice system is actually just. And I think the anger, Anne, is because people do not feel it's just because it's not. There are plenty of examples now, thanks in large part to citizens capturing on videotape what's going on in the street. And you can imagine what's going on that isn't captured. I mean, part of what troubled people so deeply, I think about George Floyd's death, is that the police saw the video cameras. There was a crowd around saying intervene. Mr. Floyd himself was saying, I can't breathe, calling for his mother. And the impassive, almost just stoic look on the face of the officer was deeply and profoundly troubling to so many. And I think that it was troubling is a sign of progress. And so we have to work at what are we going to do in our own hearts to open them up and rid ourselves of the original sin of our country? Slavery, followed by Jim Crow, followed by the Civil Rights Movement, followed by a lot of good progress. And how are the units of government responsible for keeping us all safe, meeting our justice in an equal way? Are those levers working? And I do think they're hand in glove. I mean, for example, my hometown of Chicago, where Laquan McDonald was shot 16 times by police, and basically the state's attorney there, the prosecutor, didn't do anything visible for for, well for months for months and months and months until the videotape surface well you know what she's no longer in office and that's the nexus is that we have to have people help people understand that the issues that they care about their livelihood their health in the midst of this covid virus it has been a civics lesson uh much much more but it has also been a civics lesson in how government works and does not work so let, let me let me let, just so come, come to that, a little bit if i could to
0: uh police reform may go uh, and what that says. I'm I'm thinking about the governor of Minnesota uh, who ordered a civil rights investigation into systemic racism of Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, Robert O'Brien, President uh, Trump's National Security uh, Advisor, says he doesn't believe there is such a thing as systemic racism in the police. This is one of those questions that really does divide people very deeply. Where do you stand?
1: Well, this is not an issue of where do I stand. The evidence shows that there are police departments in our country that have a pattern and practice of discriminatory behavior. How do I know that? Because when President Obama was in office, his Justice Department did investigations of those police departments. I'll give you just one, Ferguson, where Michael Brown died. After his death, President Obama directed his attorney general then, Eric Holder, to go physically to Ferguson to meet with the police department, to meet with the family, to meet with activists and faith leaders and business leaders and listen to their story. And then he pulled back and his investigators did a whole analysis because what he heard on the ground uh, is that Michael Brown was not an exception, that there was this uh, pattern of arresting particularly poor Black people. Oftentimes, for taillight violations or, you know, running a traffic light, they were unable to make bail, and so they were then incarcerated. And when you're incarcerated in jail while you're waiting, your fees and penalties continue to run. And it was a revenue generator for the city. When Eric Holder discovered that pattern in practice, he was able to require the city of Ferguson to enter into a consent decree supervised by a court that required certain steps to end that practice. And so we know, and that's not the only one. Now, this current Justice Department stopped the practice of doing these pattern and practice investigations. But the track record before they came in is ample and clear. And I'm not saying every police officer in every police department by any stretch. I have dear friends who are in law law enforcement. Uh, We were protected by law enforcement when we were in the White House. I know many people put their lives on the line. But I also know that we don't use the resources we should to train and recruit and, and get rid of implicit biases, and that's what needs to happen. It's not that we don't know what we need to do, at. It. It's just is there the political will to do it, and the political will comes from the pressure.
0: And if you were to, I mean, I'm slightly putting you back into your White House incarnation here, but if you were sitting there and you had to decide what specific reforms you would now undertake,
1: where would you begin? begin by asking every police department to look at how they're using force. Uh, one of the organizations we work with, Campaign Zero, found that if we look at these issues like use of force, we can reduce the number of deaths at the hands of the police dramatically. We also recommended in our task force report that there be an independent investigator where there is a police-involved uh, shooting or brutality, because the prosecutors have to work with the police day in and day out. And so it's important for the integrity and credibility of the process that that investigation be run separately. We should be looking at whether or not the equipment that is used is military-style equipment. We ended sending our federal equipment to the state and local level because we know that that actually torques things up. Another strategy we know is evidence-based is training police officers in de-escalation. It takes real strength to de-escalate a situation. And there are examples of how to do it in ways that work. So every officer should be trained in that. Another good example is there are uh, police departments that have prohibited the use of the stranglehold. Just why hasn't every police department said it's against our practices to be able to use the stranglehold? Because you can't measure how strongly you are pushing on somebody's lungs. So why would we do it? Give a warning before the use of force just announce i'm about to i'm about to use force give the person a second to see if they can control themselves so there there are lots of and they sound almost common sense and you would probably say well why aren't we doing that anyway and it's because we don't have law enforcement agencies that have been held accountable and now we have to do that
0: well that that seems to be be the critical point there and we went quite deeply there into what should happen to the police but we know that the background to this is society it is race in the society itself. So I wondered whether your, uh, your optimism was perhaps harder to bear out when it comes to the broader situation of race in America, and particularly the way that racial divisions and dividing lines between the main political parties do seem to have hardened. And where do you think this case can have a better influence
1: on that, if it can? It's a good question. It's a fair question. So I would take heart in seeing the races of the people who are out demonstrating in the streets in the 50 states in America. And the fact that those uh, demonstrations are racially mixed is encouraging. The fact that so many white people are recognizing the unfairness in the black community and are prepared to, in the midst of a pandemic, put themselves in harm's way to go out there and join with their brothers and sisters and say, we support you. There was an extraordinary video of a young black boy who was standing up in the face of a whole line of police officers. And a young girl, white girl, ran in front of him, in a sense, using her agency, her power, her white privilege, to stand as a barrier, and as the police grew closer, she wrapped her arms to protect him. And the symbolism of that gives me enormous hope. But look, I'm not Pollyanna. I recognize that race relations are, are, are not gonna be solved overnight, but I do think that that is a sign of progress. The point you make about the polarization in America, I think, of course, has been exacerbated by our president. And the fact that instead of being a unifier and instead of bringing our country together, after his election, he really has played to a small portion of his base that has a lot of energy and it's pretty toxic and that he hopes will turn out to vote. That's the strategy. And part of how he won, I believe, back in 2016, because keep in mind, he did not win the popular vote, but he really focused in the states that are swing states and he focused on his base and 100 million eligible voters in the United States did not vote. I don't think that that's going to be the case this time. And the the reason I take note is that in our midterm elections, we saw a big uptick in the number of people who turned out and, in fact, a wave of Democrats who were elected to office, including more women in Congress than ever before in our nation's history. I'm, in a sense, pushing you towards a a rather daring prophecy. But
0: do you believe that the events of these last couple of weeks and the response to them makes the re-election of Donald Trump less likely.
1: I do. I will tell you, in my lifetime, I have never seen this kind of energy and passion sustained now over days. I lived through the civil rights movement. There were people who were not all black who demonstrated, but not nearly the numbers that we have now. And I will say the other thing that's unprecedented that happened this week, and I think this week has been an inflection point, I hope a turning point, is that the U.S. military has never, in my knowledge, spoken out against a sitting president. They just don't do it because they believe that they are higher than politics. They're above politics, but their oath is to the constitution. And so that we now have a former secretary of defense speaking out so clearly and explicitly about the president's behavior that we have his own current secretary saying, no, I don't agree with the thought of militarizing our streets against lawful citizens. Uh, The fact that we have other generals, General Mullen, many other folks who are in the military um, who are well-respected by the Republican Party are speaking out. And so I think that base is shrinking, and I think that the real issue is going to be turnout. Well, that's
0: exactly, uh, and partly turnout, and partly, of course, differential turnout. Who turns out where? But if we look at something like that, Republican running on law and order, and it's very easy to feel horrified or even that there's this absurdity of the, the, the way that donald trump presented that argument this week it must bring to, to your mind as it does to mine the silent majority idea of nixon's silent majority voters who are cautious suburban they're not the loudest voices but trying to figure out how they are going to react is the key to the electoral college how do you think they will react
1: Well, so right now, and I'm not a believer, big believer in polling because I've seen polls be completely wrong. But right now, about 72 percent of the American people support the protesters. Majority of the Republican Party supports the protesters, I think. But the reaction of the military leaders to what happened out in Lafayette Square in front of the White House this week, which was basically a photo stunt by the president holding up a Bible as a prop, preceded by, you know, spraying pepper bullets and, and tear gas uh, on lawful protesters of all races. My one of my colleagues who's a twenty something white guy from Minneapolis was out there in that March. And his reaction to what happened was appalled. And if he does if you don't think he's gonna go home and tell his parents and his grandparents what happened. And so I think that the race was already close as i mentioned hillary clinton won by 3 million votes and so it boiled down to three states and trump won by fewer than 100,000 people in in three states and so yeah it's going to be turnout and that turnout is going to be made more challenging and of course because of the pandemic
0: maybe that the answer seems almost screamingly obvious to you but we do know that there has been resistance to, to turning out there are certainly elements of voter suppression and i know that you've worked very hard on that but if you have people still saying i am not convinced that voting is going to make any difference or i'm finding it too difficult to do or there's a kind of jeopardy for me in trying to register to vote what makes you think that you can make that change seismic enough to affect the race
1: Well, a lot of folks are working terribly hard to make that happen. Now, I will say, wearing my nonpartisan hat, I'm working with an organization called When We All Vote that Michelle Obama launched a couple of years ago. And it is designed to change the culture in the United States around voting and not about one election or one candidate, but all elections that matter and to try to educate the public about why those elections are so relevant to us. And people tend to vote issues they care passionately about. Um, I just earlier this week had a Zoom with uh, some of the folks that are running March for Our Lives, the Parkland teenagers who withstood the shooting at their school and created an organization to reduce gun violence. Young people care a lot about gun violence. Young people care a lot about climate change. And so there are key issues that if we reach people where they are and try to get young people particularly to vote in their first election, because then data shows that they tend to be more likely to become lifelong voters, that's when we begin to change the culture in our country around voting.
0: Let's turn a bit to, to the race. Once, if you get more people out to vote, they've got a pretty stark choice now about uh, who they can vote for. What do you reckon on Joe Biden? Is this his moment to shine? And how does he address this reputation for, for clumsiness on talking with uh, and about Black America?
1: Well, so now I'm taking off my nonpartisan hat, and I'm talking. I'm talking as a strong avid supporter for Vice President Biden for presidency. And look, I served in the Obama administration all eight years. I worked with Vice President Biden every single day. I saw how the experience he brought to the job from his many years in the Senate. I saw how deeply and profoundly he cared about building our economy back after the collapse of our banks back in two thousand. And nine, how he was such an advocate for the automobile industry, and, and this comes from his roots. Look, he grew up in a family that struggled uh, during tough economic times, so he knows what it's like for so many Americans around our. Country. You know, I
0: don't think that's perceived particularly as his his weaker suit. His weaker suit is perceived to be some of his language around race and some of his attitudes around race. Going back, and he's obviously a you know a candidate who is mature in years, so there is a long record there which is being interrogated, would you concede that he does have a reputation for clumsiness in talking with and about Black America?
1: No, I actually wouldn't. Look, he uh, he won the African-American vote in the primary overwhelmingly. He's extraordinarily popular in the African-American community. Would he have taken the same vote today that he did on some of the measures earlier in his career? Probably not. But look, we all learn as we get older. But I can tell you, having been selected not once, but twice by the president, by the first African-American president of the United States. And having seen how well he worked within that administration and what an advocate he was for a whole host of policies and legislation and programs that benefit uh, Black America. I think he has a very strong record upon which to run and his plan moving forward as we emerge from the effects of the global pandemic, where our economy has really been crushed, everything he has said, every initiative he has announced has been about making sure that we don't go back the way Donald Trump wants to go to some yesteryear that he imagines, but that we move forward with a far stronger safety net to make sure we, we move forward with everybody and not just a very few at the top. So I think his message of returning the soul of America, of making sure that when we rebuild, we rebuild for everybody, the core values of you know, everybody being able to work hard, retire with dignity, have a home, get a good education, provide for their families. And you may call it clumsiness, but I believe he comes across as extraordinarily authentic. So do you, th- you think the you ain't black comment wasn't clumsy? He admitted that was, but look, if we're going to parse every word we say, if we're going to be held by our every certain word, what I say is, you look at the totality of the person and their life experiences, and the way in which they articulate the, their vision for America. And I appreciate the fact that he was quite quick to say, "I made a flip remark." at the end of an interview. And we all are human. We all do that. I don't think it reflects in any way how he feels about the black community. I think it reflects how he felt about, feels about President Trump and whether Trump is actually looking out for people beyond his base. And the answer to that is no.
0: Now, who should his running mate be? He's promised that he'll choose a
1: woman. Does he now have
0: to pick an African-American woman? And if so, or if not, who would your choice be?
1: So I think nobody knows better than Vice President Biden what this job entails since he held it for eight years. And I think that what President Obama did, which he has advised Vice President Biden to do the same, is to figure out what your strengths are and look for somebody who will complement those uh, so that you have a team and somebody that you trust that shares your core values. And that's a very personal decision. Look, as close as I am to President Obama, I've known him nearly 30 years. I consider him my younger brother, The decision about who his vice president uh, was, was his and his alone. He had a committee that did all of the vetting and the background checks, but ultimately he had to be the one to pick that person. And I would give Vice President Biden the same space and respect to pick his running mate. The good news is it's going to be a woman, and I'm delighted. I think he has an embarrassment of riches from which to choose, including some very qualified African-American women.
0: But not necessarily given the context we're in, not necessarily an African-American candidate.
1: I think that where we are today is not as important as who he needs to help him govern over the course of his term. And I and it's one of the reasons why I don't think you should pick a vice president by somebody who's going to just help you win, because the evidence shows it doesn't actually become that big of a factor in whether you win or not. Uh, I think the factor that's going to help him win is his message, his track record, his experience and how he intends to govern the country. And what he needs to find is a partner who he thinks best fits to help him with that effort.
0: And you're you're absolutely right. We need we need to look forward, but we can't help but look back. And we can't help but look back to the beginning of Barack Obama's election was hailed by many as the beginning of a post-racial America. And even if that were not possible, one in which great strides would be made. But why has there been such slow convergence between black and white America, given that you know, we can lay a lot at Donald Trump's door, but you also have those two terms of the Obama presidency? Where
1: did it fail? Well, I think by every possible metric, President Obama had one of the most successful presidencies in our nation's history. The fact that he didn't solve race relations in our country is something that is Uh, centuries old in eight years is not the metric by which I would determine his success. Progress is slow. It is far slower than it should be. But that does not mean that we don't continue to move forward. And uh, I think, unfortunately, the Republican strategy when he was in office was to say no, to push back, to rebel against any of the normally bipartisan Pieces of legislation that we tried to push forward, and that had a tendency to polarize our country. I also think the way we consume media today is very different than in prior administrations, where everybody can go to whatever source of information they want. It allows us to stay in a comfort zone that I think is unhealthy. Uh, it's on demand. And how are we to be the arbitrators of what's actually true and what's not? But it so would be very
0: possible, of- Ms. Jarrett, to be very proud of having worked for the Obama administration and achieved so much and still think, it almost sounds to me like you, you, you don't accept that there were gaps in the record or things that could have happened differently or being pursued differently. On race and and some civil rights activists, I'm thinking of Harry Belafonte, but he's, he's not the only one. Were critical uh, of the Obama administration because they felt it didn't it didn't deliver enough on on the promise. And if you have any sympathy with that,
1: where would it lie? Well, look, were there things that we could have done differently? Sure. Uh, were there opportunities that we may have missed? You betcha in the environment in which we operated, where we had a very, very vocal and obstinate Republican Party that wasn't willing to work with us, the limitations on what President Obama could accomplish without a working, functional Congress were great. The executive branch alone sets a tone. I think no one can question the tone and the attitude that he set. I think people in this country, white, black, brown, you name it, would look to him and say he did nothing to embarrass us or to accelerate any differences or polarize our country. But yet there is this dark underbelly of our country that resented having a black president. And yes, there was an inevitable amount of resentment for his mere being. But I guess my point to you is that is not the vast majority of the American people. And so I, I take great issue to think that, uh, that, as the first black president, that somehow he could walk on water and restore race relations and deliver, as you said, on behalf of the black community, when we couldn't get the Republican Party to deliver on behalf of the entire country. And so it's unrealistic. What There's some legislation we could have passed that would have helped just the black community. That would not have passed through this Congress. And so I think that the limitations were there. Could we have told our story maybe more impactfully in the beginning when we were in the middle of this horrible economy? Perhaps we could have, but we were focused on getting the policy right. So look, every single day we would second guess ourselves and say, are we, are we doing enough? And I, I, know, I suppose what I would conclude by is to say to you that having served every single day for eight, day, eight years, there wasn't a single day where we did not give it our best effort. There wasn't a single day where we didn't wake up and say, how can we deliver on behalf of the American people and put any political interests aside? In fact, when President Obama pushed so hard for the Affordable Care Act, there were members of his own party who said, why are you trying to get Republican votes? Why are you trying to make this bipartisan? Why are you burning through political capital? Why? Because now 20 million Americans have health care who didn't have it before. Why? Because every American doesn't have to worry about a preexisting condition. All of that was putting the American interests first. Is democracy a perfect vehicle? No, it's not perfect. Did we have a perfect presidency? Of course not. The point is, do you run with the baton as fast as you can? And do you lay a foundation that enables the next generation to move forward? And on that record, I'm extremely proud. Your great-grandfather was the first black student at MIT, and yet your
0: father, who was a geneticist, a distinguished geneticist, left America. He felt excluded by racism in his own country from the work that he wanted to do. So watching these events must have also personal reminiscences for you. How much do you think America will be different after what we've lived through?
1: My hope is that it will be remarkably different. And look, uh, the process of perfecting the union is full of zigs and zags. And my great grandfather had an opportunity. His father was born a slave and yet had the vision from uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, to research and find That my great-grandfather could go to MIT and sent him there and worked hard to enable him to have that opportunity. And yet, in the midst of Jim Crow, my father couldn't get a job in the United States comparable to his white counterparts and had to leave. And I think that, that the question isn't, is it a straight line of progression as we, the question is, as we zig and zag, do we continue to try? And that's where the hopefulness comes because I think in this moment, what we see is an effort to try, an effort to be better. I've heard so many people on um, in the news media of late say, we're better than this. Well, we, you know what? If that's the case, then let's be better. Let's not just think in our hearts we're better. Let's act better. Let's feel better. Let's uh, embrace one another. And I think that we have so much potential at this moment and the question will be do we seize it or do we let it dissipate and slip back and i think there are those who realize we are at a critical point in this country and not just for us hey for people around the world who look to the united states to be that beacon of hope to look to us to say this is the way a democracy should run how are we going to be able to criticize dictators if we're acting like a dictatorship ourselves we can't we have to live by example and. As I said, I'm really proud of the way the president conducted himself, President Obama, during his term, both domestically and on a world stage. And what I hope is that when Joe Biden is elected, the American people realize that it is time to rally and pull together, because that will certainly be his effort. He will not have a presidency where he just plays to his base. He will appeal to all of America. And I think we're ready for that. And perhaps we had to go through the pain of the a uh, resistance to President Obama's mere being in office to see a better way forward.
0: Still a race between two, shall I say, mature, some would say elderly, white men. It's odd, after so many years of attempts by yourself and, uh, and others to have come up with a more diverse polity in America.
1: I know one thing for sure, regardless of who Vice President Biden selects as his running mate, his cabinet and his administration will reflect the diversity of our country. I know how important that was to President Obama, and I know how important that is to Vice President Biden. He knows he will make better decisions for all of America if he has a representative cabinet. And I think that, uh, so it isn't just one man, it is a team of people who will lead our country, I think, to greater days ahead, working in partnership with people all over the country, at the state and local level, We didn't really talk about this, Anne, and it is an important point. The activism that we're seeing this week didn't just begin this week. The day after President Trump's inauguration, we had a women's march in the United States where literally millions of women rose up in protest against his election maybe some who didn't vote who will now vote in the next election. March for our lives. Millions of people around our country outraged by violence of crime that we have in our country, uniquely in our country. And that activism turned into voter registration, as I mentioned, the midterm election. So what we have seen is a enthusiasm that has been building and that boiled over with this latest horrific death of uh, George Floyd. And I think that that momentum that has been building didn't just start two weeks ago, and that is what is going to continue us into uh, November and hopefully into President Biden swearing in on January 20th. That's the day I look forward to most right now. Valerie Jarrett, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure, Anne. Be well.
0: And we'd love to know what you think after a week of such serious events in the US. How will protests and the response to them change America? What will the death of George Floyd mean for future generations? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Radio. There's plenty more from The Economist on this story. It's our cover this week, of course, and you can read all of our coverage, our leader comment and much more. Economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. And while you're on, do have a listen to our sister podcast, Checks and Balance, for a deep dive into the politics of the police versus protesters in America. That's Checks and Balance, out Friday from Economist Radio, wherever you listen.